everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This is season three, episode eight. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector head for technology here at Hedgeye. With me today, as always, Felix Wang and Andrew Friedman, the sector heads at Hedgeye for China and Communications. And this is our podcast, Unscripted Equity Curiosity, a Hedgeye podcast. The goal of today's podcast and of every podcast is idea generation. It's the cutting room floor uh, for a lot of what we do where you don't see necessarily our pointed recommendations, long or short, a specific stock in these podcasts. This is really just idea generation uh, that the three of us tend to share between each other thematically, uh, idea-wise, macro-wise, uh, lots of discussion across uh, the last uh, three seasons so far. Very proud of two and a half seasons, I should say, uh, so far as where we are. And today we have a special guest. Uh, two special guests, actually, Lauren Bonner and Arun Mittal from MBM Capital. And we stumbled upon MBM Capital uh, thanks to having a friend in common who works at Hedgeye, Jeff Gregoire, on the sales team. And Jeff introduced us, and it's just like the most brilliant model. Essentially, the way when I like read what MBM is doing, I was like, crap, I promised myself I would do that the next time a cycle imploded, that I would go buy tons and tons of failed companies of pennies on the dollar and become like a mega billionaire. And boom, that's what MBM Capital is doing. I know you guys have a, a nicer way of phrasing it, orphaned venture stage companies who have been abandoned basically by their VC sponsors and buying a pennies on the dollar. But I, I know that's a, that's a, a big uh, wide open field. So I guess maybe we'll start with, and, and by the way, your, both of your personal backgrounds might be a whole second podcast. Cause like Lauren, 10 years, 20 years ago, you were managing editor of a uh, travel of, 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 of let's go. Like, I'm just like, okay, we could spend the whole time talking about like, where should I go next? I mean, this is both of you have very fascinating uh, personal bios. Um, and we're so proud to have you both here today. Uh, so thank you for joining us. And so maybe just as an opening, um, I don't know, Arun, if you want to start, Lauren, if you want to start, but give us kind of like the, the genesis of MBM, um, how the firm has grown over time, what kinds of things you found yourself doing, and also give us maybe like, I don't know, what you guys were doing January of 2022 versus March of 2023, for example, and, and how things have changed and what's going on, what's the latest, and sort of kind of like an open-ended question of like, tell us what it looks like where you guys are. Sure. Uh, well, we, uh, we first met, uh, thanks again for having us, by the way. Uh, this is it's great to be here. We're big fans of the show. Um, we started working together about eight years ago at, uh, when I was a GP at a fintech fund, venture fund called One Zero Capital, best known for starting Better.com, the digital mortgage company. Um, and Arun was the brought in to be one of the turnaround CEOs of a company. Um, we were an atypical venture fund uh, in a couple of ways. One, um, we, it was early in the venture studio model. So that meant that we created companies, which by default meant we were in control. Um, it also meant um, that we had a low basis, pretty atypical in venture. And then finally, it was all partner capital. So I, as a you know, a GP, I was the one kind of hitting the 
payroll release button every two weeks, watching money go into these companies. And it gives you a very different mentality. Um, it, it means that you know we, we really had zero tolerance for zeros in the portfolio, unlike most venture, right? And, and, we, so, and we also had operational expertise. And so we spent a ton of time with all the companies in the portfolio, companies that were completely flailing, um, all the way to the ones that um, like better that that ultimately um, did very well, became unicorns, et cetera. Um, and it was in that experience that Arun and I worked together. He was brought into one of the craziest companies <laughs> that needed the heaviest lift and the most amount of work. Um, and we worked very closely together. I was kind of running the same similar type of playbook across all of these companies as I dropped into them, really getting them to their best possible outcome. And for us, you know, if we put a million bucks into a company and sold it for to, for 40 million bucks, you know, two years later, that was a great outcome for us. That would be a fail for most venture, right? A $40 million exit. But for us, it was great. Um, in the company that Arun and I worked on together, um, we flipped it to cash flow positive. Like, again, a, a good outcome for the partnership, but not necessarily kind of a, a good venture outcome. Um, and it was then, you know, kind of 2015 that we really started to just see up close um, the the economic destruction and also opportunity that happens in a venture landscape, right? You have kind of unicorn or bust, um, which which mean you know you venture is amazing because it fuels so much innovation, um, but at the same time there's just not a lot of you know there's not a third path for the companies in that middle ground, and so having spent a bunch of time with that set in our own portfolio and getting good outcomes for that set, uh, we just saw so much opportunity. Um, and so kind of fast forward over the next um, kind of five, six, seven, eight years, um, we we had built a bit of a reputation among founders for helping them get kind of unstuck. Um, and then we were just seeing unbelievable deals and then stepping back, kind of looking at the opportunity as venture was doing nothing but growing, going up straight up into the right. Um, we just saw, you know, 300 billion poured into early stage venture. That's pre-series C over the last decade in the U.S. 90% of the companies that received that capital failed to get to series C or have a profitable exit. Like, man, that's a lot of opportunity. Um, and, and it's structural. Um, and so by kind of 20, end of 2020, coming into 21, we were pretty convinced of the structural and durability like opportunity. Um, one of our advisors is a guy who, who ran this strategy in the 80s with Tom Perkins. Um, and so we just got really compelled by the strategy. And then, of course, 2021 happened, um, biggest funding year ever. Um, we just kept thinking, you know, there's going to be a fall at some point. Um, and, and then, you know, as we went to market, though, in 21, folks thought we were totally crazy. Um, coming into 2022, as the venture pullback started to happen in January, February, you know, valuation started coming down. Early stage valuation started coming down 20, 25% January, February, March of, of last year. Um, rounds started taking a little bit longer. Um, we We just feel like you know, this is this is a great time to be doing this strategy. Um, I'll let Arun maybe share a little bit more about what we're seeing now versus um, versus what we were seeing a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I think um, <clears throat> what, what's interesting about where we are is, um, you know, I, I come from a credit background uh, before I joined uh, One Zero, 
And we, we saw the story play out in 2008, 2009, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, where, where we are right now, which is there are a lot of great companies that have, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, um, that they're no longer backable by VC, right? They're, they're maybe not uh, on the trajectory, complex cap tables. And what you saw in 2008, 2009 was a lot of again, good companies, good bonds just got thrown out. Some insane, uh, you know, expectations. Um, I, I was at Stone Castle. Uh, you know, we, we were bidding uh, trust preferred securities. The implied valuation of some of those things, 100% of all banks in the U.S. would have failed, which, which obviously is not the case. So I think what we're seeing are good companies uh, that really have a, a broken um, a cap table uh, where we can buy them, to, to your point, pennies on the dollar, um, and, and, and really execute the NBN playbook. Um, you know, I think over the last year, you know, the, the opportunity set has increased 10x. Um, what we're really seeing, um, I, I think this speaks to funds flow, is that you're seeing a lot of the non-traditional investors in the space basically retrench. I think something like 70% of capital that was going in venture was non-traditional. Um, similar dynamics to GCF, right, um, coming into 2008. Uh, and, and then you're seeing the lending side contract as well. So just a really interesting confluence of events that are feeding into the strategy. Amazing intro. Okay, so I, I'm i guessing that like, maybe if you could maybe contrast, give us like a, an example. I, you don't have to name names if you're, if you're you know, keeping whatever. I don't, I don't know how it works and like what has to be NDA'd and such. So obviously things that are NDA'd don't, don't share with us, but um, give us an example of like an investment you guys did early in the process and compare that to one you did recently. I know the firm's only a couple years, like less than two years old, but um, kind of like, you know, just sort of like comparing the opportunity set, just because again, like you said, it's it's different, right? In, in November of 2021, when you launched, perfect timing, by the way, um, you're, the opportunities you're getting are like you've kind of talked about, I'll make maybe make a baseball reference. It's like, you know, the VCs are all focused on the home runs and there's plenty of singles and doubles to go around and, and they're willing to sell those. Um, now you're getting even triples, <laughs> anything that's not already a home run, things that are triples and leading out from third base towards home, they don't want to touch anymore. They don't even want to put money in. And they can, so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of just curious about either the types of companies, either the sector, is it, is it e-com? Is it software, enterprise software? Is it, is it biotech? I don't know, whatever it is that, that is fueling the, the kind of like the funnel that you guys are getting and, and how are you picking your way through it and give an example of like one from the early period and, and one from now. And, and then I guess a follow-up question to that, sorry, there's a lot in here, but I'm just so curious, is what are you doing with the companies um, when you have them? Are you, are you keeping them... Um, within the stable or are you finding creative exits for them along the way because you guys are just sort of like you know catching an arbitrage moment and flipping it or i, I don't know how does that all work i'm just so i'm so curious <laughs> it sounds like such a good business so um maybe, maybe i'll start with the last question first there's a lot to unpack there right so uh you know our investment thesis is there are these great companies as i described so it's like Good company, bad price, or good company, good price, and, and we're in the good company, good price <laughs> bucket. 
Um, and, and what we're really trying to do is acquire companies that are in the path of consolidation um, and, and within sectors that we know really well. So FinTech, data, HR tech, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a company to, to kind of like tease out like what we're doing. I mean, there, there was a company that we were involved in. Uh, I, I, I've been involved in since 2014. It's a FinTech. I, I won't get into names. Uh, we'll talk about outcomes. Um, tier one VCs invested uh, tons of capital, you know, almost $30 million invested in, in the firm. And by 2019, it was a mess. I mean, if you walked into the room, there were 3D printers and, you know, they, they had an office space on the 30th floor of a beautiful building that only three people were in. It was like almost a million dollars a year. I mean, it was like all the things that you would you would think could go wrong. Uh, and it was like, this is like out of a movie or a TV show. That's that's what this thing was. And um, mo most of the times the, the company would have just dissolved. I mean, it, you know, but it had uh, built a really interesting uh, reg tech stack and a, and a tech stack. Um, and so as an investor, I leaned in and it was a board like reorg. We brought in some recap capital. The MBM playbook was, you know, the same, right? Like get good management team in, uh, clean up, go to market, position for an exit. I mean, it was it wasn't like a you know it wasn't rocket science, right? Like nothing we're doing is rocket science. And um, eighteen months later, we sold. It was an eight x return on, on recap capital. Um, you know, pretty typical for what we would do. And you know, I would argue that you know Lauren and I got conviction in the strategy uh, as a structural strategy. Like th this is fallout from venture, right? Venture historically is one in 10. That was the case in 2014. That was the case in 2012. That was the case in 2006. Um, but what we're finding now in this particular moment in time is that because of the contraction, um, the opportunity set has exploded. And, and you know, what we say uh, to investors and, and internally is it pays to be patient. Um, you know, this is not a high velocity strategy. Uh, and we're price makers, not price takers. And so we, we really, uh, we kind of really are enjoying the moment. I, I would say in terms of kind of the opportunities that we're seeing, you know, the company that Arun referenced where um, he leaned in pretty heavily in the beginning of 2020, um, that was not at a heavy discount. Um, to prior valuations. We are now seeing deals come in at kind of like 90 plus percent discounts, 95% plus discounts relative to their prior valuations. Um, and in some cases, just out of the gate. I mean, we're hearing from folks, um, you know, whether they're venture, traditional venture capital investors, um, venture uh, lenders who are out of the gate looking for, ready to do, you know, big discounts and, and and they should right especially venture capitalists they're as as good fiduciaries right they they're structured to hit one one or two out of 10 completely out of the park and everything else they should basically ignore right it's rational neglect um and 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 so that's what they're they're just there's an acceleration to that rational neglect that's happening right now that I think used to take a much longer amount of time. So if if you think about where things were in kind of last 
six months ago, last summer or so, you know, venture investors had moved from supporting call at the top, you know, 40% of their existing portfolio on an ongoing basis. Now it's, it's, down to kind of 15%, 20%. And so all of a sudden, that next tier down of quality companies is kind of up for grabs. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of sector pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. And what what kind of like sectors are you finding? Um, you know, obviously it's it's whatever Silicon Valley, you know, was excited about, let's say in the last five years. I mean, if you're looking at series C stage, right? So you're thinking of things that were not, they're usually not 10 years old vintage companies, right? It's usually more like in the, I don't know. Tell me what you guys are. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm asking like yeah. what vintage and what and what industry like focus or flavor or sector are 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 things like focused in So I'd say we really stick to a kind of a very narrow power alley of of what we're good at which are are companies that have a great product and a typically underperforming sales team and maybe some management challenges um in fintech hr tech saas uh, we'll do a little bit of e-commerce in terms of like the enablement, um, it, you know, the sort of the underpinning. Um, but we are seeing, I would say, just an absolute flood of deals in direct to consumer uh, just because of, you know, th- the changes over the last three or four or five years um, that have made those businesses really tough to sustain. Um, you know, we're looking for companies that at their core, um, and this is in part why we love the your podcast and the the Hedge product is like at their core have a good fundamental business model, right? I mean, so many of the businesses that we see every day are ones that have just insurmountable customer acquisition costs, or just really were kept alive by um, you know by by cheap cash. So I guess that's kind of like the next question is is so you take these business models that we've seen, right, where they're paying you know whatever. $10 a user to bring them in the door. Um, they're losing, they're, they're offering a discount to some real value service out there to bring them in, right? To, in the first place, their underlying cost structure hasn't scaled yet to be, or that's the nice way of putting it. Maybe it never will scale, but like they haven't scaled yet in order to actually afford to have positive gross margins at the level of 10, you know, 10% cheaper than the real service that's out there. So how do you like take something like that? But, but in fairness has created a real brand has created a beachhead um, is, is a recognized presence and has revenue. Like, how do you take that and, and fix it? Like, what is the, like, what is the triage there? And I, I, I mean, like, obviously step one is all the frivolities, right? Like the, two pool tables per engineer in the company that can't sustain, but what, what are like this? How do you do this? Like, how do you, how do you fix something like that? I mean, I would say it's, it's Aruna's right. It's not rocket science. Um, and it's not, it's not kind of intellectually hard in a lot of ways. It's just a, the willingness to have hard conversations typically. Um, so what does that mean? Um, 
you know, we're looking for companies that have demonstrated product market fit. They've got at least 5 million of revenue. Um, so, you know, oftentimes we'll do anything from five to 25 million of revenue. So often these companies, they're real companies. They've got real customers who value what they're doing. Um, but a lot of it, you know, it comes down to a lot of my training from my Bridgewater days of just being willing to, to kind of <laughs> call, call things for what they are um, and to do it pretty quickly and to force hard conversations. Um, you know, it's, you know, we have conversations with CEOs and say, look, we really honor and respect what you've done. You've built a business from sort of zero to call it 10 million of ARR. You should be the head of product. You're not the right CEO going forward. If they don't want to do that, that's okay. We don't have to do a deal. We got plenty of deals that we're looking at. But um, you know, that's a lot of it. It's a is just the willingness and and the sort of you, you kind of have to have the skin and the stomach for it uh, to go in and have these hard conversations. But I don't think it's anything you know sort of deeply insightful that others don't know. You know, if a company is growing at ten percent when really they should be growing at thirty percent, you need you know you need a new head of sales, right? Um, and so we have those hard conversations. We're not shy about making those decisions pretty quickly. Um, and then we have really good governance. We're, you know, we're in these companies every week, um, looking at KPIs, holding folks accountable, really pushing for that. Um, and, and for a lot of these companies, you know, they haven't had that kind of attention um, in a couple of years. Will you ever go in and rethink a business model? Like, for example, take something that has a sales force and say this should this should all be self-serve, self-bought, and we're gonna we're gonna do this totally different. Or is that too much risk for the portfolio? Cause that could just get you into like a 25-month restructuring story that you guys just don't have the time for because you've got other things to do. Yeah, not yeah, we're we're really not doing stuff like that, right? It's like the the business model as it is should work. It's really typically about the talent and upgrading talent. Got it. Got it. Okay. I will say, I mean, we've seen seen situations where it's like the, the low-hanging fruit will definitely pull on. So price increases. I know it sounds crazy, but like it's okay if you lose some customers, right? If if the rest of it just drops to the bottom line or you, you've been undercharging or not charging for a particular service that we know folks will pay for. Um, distribution, right? Direct sale versus wholesale. Like additive low-hanging fruit to existing business models. Um, we, we like that. That's kind of the operational arm, if you will. Um, you know, where we see that, um, you know, that there's just a little bit more conviction to, to, to kind of get in. Well, I mean, it's got a more like a, a detailed or a, a small question around that. Um, and Andrew and Felix, please, you know, chirp me on Slack. So if you guys want to step in. Um, if, if I look at the, the, you mentioned new head of sales and, and Arun, you mentioned, you know, the price increase of distribution, right? These are all part of like a head of sales approach, right? Because like price increase just done raw, like slap in the face, like that that's one approach we've seen companies do. We've seen other companies do like, here's a basket of new features that you are going to pay for, but you are going to pay for it. You know, like it's not, we're not giving it away for free this year um, and it's going to cost Six percent more, and by the way, every two years you're going to get another basket like this, or something like that. Um, on the head of sales front, um, are you because so many um, unicorns uh, are like way underwater, uh, and so the, the fancy head of sales with amazing uh, you know resumes are kind of like you know uh, realize that they're not going to make their their billions where they are. 
are they easier to pluck out now? Because that's my rational thinking. Um, but then I've seen some data. Our data shows that like the sales movement um, is less, like meaning like less, there's been less um, in terms of like job openings, for example, like reduction in job openings in sales outperformed. I know I'm saying that all on inverse backwards, whatever, but if you get my point, like that there's been like people have held on to their salespeople a little bit more, it seems. So I, I don't know, are you guys seeing those opportunities in sales? Yeah, I would say, I think this is one of the most liquid talent markets I've seen in a decade. Um, so lots of opportunity to bring over great folks, especially because we're offering a, a very different path. You know, we're last check-in investors. We're not looking to do more and more rounds. So, you know, your equity grant is your equity grant. You're not getting more diluted. You know, you, there's sort of a straight line between kind of where your impact and the the exit of the business in three to five years. So um, for us, we I think there's been a little bit of um, whiplash from folks who thought they would get bigger outcomes over the last couple of years um, with exits. Um, and, and those folks are now kind of saying, yep, uh, <laughs> private equity backed, accountability, performance, I get it, that, that sounds good. Um, and I think on the sales front too, you know, we're we're doing a very different kind of thing. We're we're basically saying you don't have to go into new verticals. You don't have to like we're not creating all, all new products. We're not, you know, we're not create we're, we're not um we're not you're not taking a lot of tech risk in terms of, you know, selling in, in advance of where the product is. It's really folks who can just come in and say, here's the thing we need you to grow revenue from 20 million to 40 million in 5 years. We're, you know, with the existing product, that's it, <laughs> go. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what we do is really just reduce complexity um, and, and kind of eliminate operational friction um, and just focus on kind of a narrow thing and then like simplify and execute uh, more so than sort of asking folks to have these like really broad mandates and, and always, you know, kind of sell, sell products that aren't kind of quite there necessarily. I, I think that just like one point there, I think that's like a really core difference of what we do versus venture is we don't view our companies as, uh, you know, or our portfolio as a portfolio of options, right? Like we're reducing volatility. We're saying, look, we have a clear path. Um, you know, it doesn't have to grow 100% year over year. That's like really hard to do and to do that um, in, a, in a sustained manner. Um, and, and and so the, the the focus the you know the simplification of the business model, uh, you know these these all kind of feed into the the returns that we're able to generate um, as we're going into these situations. Well, let me okay, and I've got like six follow-ups here already, but um, let me, let me <laughs> ask the one that's like top of mind that just keep, just popped in there, which is, um, I would have thought because I'm 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 I am I know I'm, I I look like I'm 21, but but I'm actually I've been through a few cycles. And, um, and uh, I lived through the 2001 story at a startup company and dealing with venture capital community and so on and so forth. And I would have thought that uh, somebody like Battery Ventures or Sequoia or Name Your Big Shop has an entire team called NBM Capital internally who is constantly doing what you guys are doing, but it sounds like not, right? It sounds like they're still focused on their what they're good at, which is 
finding the next Google essentially and leaving everything else out. Is that right? Am I, it says yes that's or no. Right. Yes. Yeah. yes, that's it. That's exactly right. Because then, then they should, right? They should, they should stick to their own power alley. I don't know because like some of them have created adjacencies around their businesses, right? Like for example, private wealth for the partners has grown into a large family office, multifamily office business. The, the public equity business has grown into its own hedge fund to some degree. So like, I think that you're right, uh, maybe, but like I've seen them grow into verticals. I'm, I'm just, it's just odd that they haven't thought, okay, yeah, this core business is focused on, you know, top 10% performers. Let's, let's have a strategy for the next 30% or 40%. It's just interesting that you guys are picking on something that should have been done. Uh, I, mean, I, I think from an economic standpoint, I agree with you. Like it, it seems like rational that it should be done, but like, you know, what, what we've seen um, is a couple of things. One is that these are very fragmented owners of companies, right? So no, no particular fund complex, right? Whether it's Bessemer or, or Andreessen or whoever, right? They, they own like 10 or 15% of a company and they're sitting alongside other investors. So like one is like, what's the social dynamics there, right? There, there's a, they, there's also been, you know, kind of the second point is do they have the talents to go in and restructure? And and really if, if they're out hunting, uh, you know, I, I think it was a dinner and someone was talking about uh, recreating the woolly mammoth, like, that sounds like a great venture bet. <laughs> are, are they really going to spend time looking at portfolio and saying, hey, we're just trying to get back to like the dollars that we invested nine years ago. And that original deal team has already moved on and started their own venture. Like it just, it doesn't feel like it's it's rational, right? And, and to some degree, I would argue that the firms that do start doing some of that work are actually... Um, not venture firms, like they're not actually taking the right risks. You know, the risks that they should be taking are these like SpaceX, Woolly Mammoth, like they need to find the next thing that'll be a hundred billion dollars. And if they're trying to do what we're doing, like they're actually taking the wrong risks. Uh, that's right, that's right, right? That, that, it, it's like a scale of capital that problem they have, that you guys are tiny and nimble and you guys can go after uh, all the detritus of the of the cycle, and uh, they literally, if they spent money and people doing that, it would uh, lower their returns probably. Well, but they they have to hunt outliers, and like I I think the issue and why there's some opportunity for us is that you know the the outlier bets they should be very binary in some sense, right? Like a lot of them should fail, and then one of them will be worth. 10, 20, 30, $40 billion to some degree. And I'm being a little facetious, but that really like everyone got lazy and started taking interest rate bets, right? Like they're like, Hey, multiples are really high. So we build yet another company and like, Oh, look at here's kind of the public markets. And, you know, like to some degree, a lot of companies were interest rate bets and that that's not like consistent with the model of investing in outliers. Okay, so now I have six more question follow-ups. Uh, um, okay, so so let's go with that last last point there about interest rate uh, bets. Um, I guess a thought process on that would be to say that uh, 
VCs have to unwind like almost six years of investing through to mid 2022. And because there's interest rate bets as a denominator or, 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 or underlying basis of decision-making uh, in, in for, for six straight years. So I guess that raises one question, which is your opinion. Do you think that traditional VC is sort of like dead for another three years or, you know, kind of like it's an opinion question and take it whatever direction you want. And two is, does that affect your business model? Because you guys are looking to like you, like you don't care who the, who you sell your asset to. It could be a public company. It can be a private company, usually backed by VC, maybe like you need VCs to still be sponsoring stuff. No, for at least for some part of the exit supply chain to work. And then, okay, now we'll hit on like two other of the backlog questions. So, okay. So the first question was interest rate and it's, and it's implication for VC investing overall. Second is how does it affect your business model? The third now is does this, some investors of some customers of ours, have made the case that that um, acquisitions are dead in tech, like meaning that there's like you know the the, the at, at a large enough scale it's it's regulatory um, that it won't happen. Um, I, I'm very curious to hear your views of actual on the ground acquisitions and M and A, um, and then. I mean, I've seen a little bit happen. I've seen some service now activity that they've, they've kept the door open um, and they like paying um, paying people back, I guess. Um, I, you can tell I'm not a big fan of service now. Um, <laughs> and, and then maybe like the last part of that, and I know this is not like a nine part question, but like, what's your time to value? Like, are you guys thinking like, okay, the fixes we make is going to, drive three years of improvement, we better sell 18 months in? Or is this like, you guys are like, I'm paying pennies on the dollar. As long as they're not burning cash flow, I'm going to hold this forever. Like, is that, like, how does the ROI work when you're paying pennies on the dollar and your funnel is like growing by a mile every every two weeks? It's a great question. So, so why don't I start there? I mean, I, I think um, for a lot of the companies that we're looking at, including some that are in the portfolio, their exit opportunities within 12 months. Um, our capital is, is long duration though, and, and we like to invest where they're uncapped returns, where we, we think that we can compound uh, you know, over three, four, five, 10 years even. And, and, and that's where we can really you know, kind of generate uh, very large uh, multiples on investment, which is where we really focus versus uh, kind of IRR investing. Um, and, and we're seeing that with our portfolio, both kind of the opportunity to sell, uh, you know, the, the, the FinTech that I mentioned earlier, you know, others, but also like those businesses we could have held and, and kind of continued to compound. And so I think we're, we're somewhat agnostic. We're really looking at um, what's the optimal time to sell. But as we're looking at opportunities, we want to, you know, we have the pick it a lot, so to speak. And so, you know, value, good business um, with uncapped return potential is, is, is you know, where, where we're putting um, you know, our, our time and money. Awesome. And then, and then you asked a bunch of other questions that I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So the first one was the interest rate and the VC industry. The second was how does that impact your business? 
Um, and then the third we didn't get to was uh, the M&A window and what's actually happening. So, so why don't I take the interest rate and then, and then uh, Lauren can maybe provide some commentary on what we're seeing in M&A. So, so kind of a couple of things. I, I think for, for VC, uh, new companies are still being formed, right? Like, you know, I, I, they're woolly mammoth, they're raising money. <laughs> so, so new ideas continue to be formed, um, which means that we will see uh, the pipeline just continually refreshed, right? Like companies that are being formed today, some of them will make it to unicorn status. Maybe, you know, they'll have raised less capital, be more capital efficient. And, and then there'll be companies that in 2024, 2025, we're going to be like, hey, uh, you have to $10 million revenue, but you just didn't get that escape velocity. Like, let, let's dig in. So I think the pipeline is just continually being regenerated, uh, which is why we love, you know, what we do. Um, it, it, it speaks to the structural elements. I think the the interest rates are going to impact venture in a, in a couple of ways. I think for funds and companies that need to exit now, like obviously multiples have contracted, um, some of the venture debts and other non-dilutive capital sources have really um, shrunk compared to historicals, right? Like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature were huge, huge lenders in the space both term loan and working capital, you know, has receivable back lines. And, and that's really come down. Um, the non-bank lenders, you know, they're, they're stuck with a legacy portfolio that many of them are working through. Um, and, and, you know, like they'll be able to support some companies, but not all of them. So I think the cost of capital has gone up. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a bifurcation between you know, new venture funds that have a lot of dry powder and that are investing in, in kind of like the 23, 24, 25 vintage, like that's a different story. They'll they'll come in at lower valuations, maybe more investor friendly, you know, maybe better risk. Like they'll take more risk, which is what they should be doing and, and better risk, if you will. Um, and, and then the real question is for kind of everyone else, right? Folks that are sitting in a 2015 vintage or a 2012 vintage fund you know, 2018 vintage funds, like what's happening in their portfolio. It's going to be a little different for everyone. There are still really, really good companies that, you know, maybe the valuations were, were stretched. They're going to stay private a lot longer. Like these are 10 year funds. They can extend forever. But I, I do think, you know, coming back to Lauren's comments, um, COVID accelerated drawdown on reserves. Um, you know, anecdotally, I don't, I don't have data on this, but, you know, more companies were supported through COVID. I think the venture industry really stepped up and, and kind of, uh, you know, did what they were, you know, there to do, support their companies. But those reserves are, are starting to run dry. And, and, and they're, you know, folks are saying, look, I don't think this business is going to sell for 10 times. And so am I going to put in another 5 million and, and, you know, I think it's going to sell for 2x. Like, no, like that's not happening. It doesn't make sense. It's not rational. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, kind of the rate environment that we're in is going to start to really impact uh, how reserves are deployed. Yeah, if you if you take a just a, a step back on, on in the last few years of venture, institutional allocators increased their exposure to venture really considerably over the last five years. Um, and then kind of 2021, 
um, venture funds were deploying three, four times faster than they expected to. Right. So if, if their investment period was four years, they, they may have deployed in nine months or 12 months, 15 months. Um, and so it, it, it kind of put institutional allocators on their back foot. Right. In terms of their, you know, cash management. Um, and then they really have, from what we've heard, you know, sort of been slowing, um, slowing the re-up process for a lot of those venture funds. Um, and then at the same time, 2021 was just a you know, massive funding year. Um, and most founders raised 24 months of capital. Uh, so I think the back half of this year is, is going to, the bottom's going to fall out. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I agree, sort of, you know, venture is long duration, very sensitive to rates, um, but it, it'll come back because there is just so much, there, there is kind of now institutional allocation to these funds. Um, but I think the next, the, the back half of this year is, is going to be really rough. I want to follow up on that last part. Um, totally agree. Um, bottom falls out. Okay. Bottom falls out in theory that means your, both of your inboxes melt down, like you don't have enough capacity. So, so how are you guys preparing institutionally for this already? What you're seeing probably your funnel is growing by leaps and bounds, just because of your normal natural growth that the co company only started a couple of years, less than two years ago, and your name's getting out there. And so your funnel would be growing even in a normal time, but like your funnel's probably growing at an accelerated rate. So like, how are you preparing for that is my question. Like, is ChatGPT making any better? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> are you subbing in? Like, you know, we've got ChatGPT making decisions now. Um, okay, but that's jokes aside. So how do you prepare for that? And then the second thing is, how are you, like, I know, like, you don't have a problem with funnel right now, but like, technically, like, you know, you should be chasing the fun. Like you should be, if the funnel's up 10X, you should want it up 20X. Like, why not? Like sure. you're even better deals. So like, are you doing things like, are you calling? Um, I know like in the, in the bubble, like there was a, a lot of venture capital uh, uh, funds were started. So are you like directly calling the Kardashians VC and being like, have you guys had enough pain yet? Or are you calling Kanye's venture capital fund and being like, are you done? You know, like, do you want to show us what you have? And we'll just take a look and see if there's anything we want. Are you calling bankers across the street being like, look, you guys talk to VCs every day. We're here. Like, you know, like, and then those same bankers are like feeling at the mouth because not only will they get the, the M&A deal, but they'll raise capital for you through their bank for your fund. Right. Is that like, tell me how you're both preparing, you know, for the funnel and also driving the funnel, like, you know, kind of hearing about those two things seems like, again, ahead of the bottom falling out with your last comment in the back half of this year. Yeah, I mean we're we're getting faster and faster at our top of sorting through the fast the top of the funnel, right? And so we're and we're just staying, you know, harder and harder fast to our 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 parameters, which are pretty narrow. Um, you know, fintech, HR tech, SaaS, uh, must have five million of revenue. You know, must have kind of a a fundamental like product that makes sense and has product market fit, and uh, you know works um and, and then kind of genuinely doing some some sort of face palm stuff um that you, we love right we're like great we know we can fix that um and, and so um 
a lot of it is just is getting faster and faster at that top of funnel. And really, you know, I think we're putting term sheets out to kind of basis points of, of the number of deals that we see. Um, so, you know, that and, and trying to work out every day, that, that's how we're getting ready for the back half of the year, but um, and building a team. So, you know, we're, we brought on some team members, um, continuing to bring on more team members throughout the year. So, so that'll help a lot. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. And then the the second part of your question, I think, was around, you, you know, sort of how are we going out to folks? Yeah, I mean, we've we've definitely been going out to, to funds and to banks and to venture lenders um, since, you know, since we started. I would say we're getting more inbound than outbound these days, um, hearing from hearing from bankers, hearing from lenders, hearing from venture funds. Um, and I would say, like, it, it's 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 really a generally a, like positive, you know, I think we hear from venture funds in particular saying, look, I love this founder. I can't as a fiduciary continue to invest in this company. Um, I want them to have a second chance. Why don't you, you know, maybe you guys can step in. I've effectively written it down anyway. Um, so why don't you come in? We also hear from venture funds saying, I, you know, I'm sick of being on a Sunday afternoon board call like twice a month on a company that's not going to return my initial invested capital. I, I I need, again, kind of need to spend my time and my resources on my highest probability bets. And so we do actually hear from a lot of those venture funds and are happy partnering with them. Um, and then I, I think definitely hearing from, from bankers. And I think we're, we're starting to see kind of the seeds of, of those relationships that we've been sowing over the last decade or two. Um, so, so it's we're hearing more from them, but you're right. I think you know the, the other thing that we're doing is looking at kind of these publicly available data sets. You know, layoffs.io. Um, you know, folks who are leasing, um, subleasing their space. You know, sort of giving other indicators of companies that might be um, struggling with cash. Um, and, and, and trying to be a little bit proactive about it as well. Looking at old vintages of top tier funds, top tier funds tend to transact a lot faster. Um, and so, you know, that's also, and they also, you know, are great pickers of, of, of talent and, and, and companies. So, um, we do some proactive to your point as well. That's awesome. So, so in, in far as you mentioned, uh, building a team, um, and I want to follow up on that, but actually on uh, Slack, Andrew just made, uh, he, had, he, had to jump, he has to jump in a couple of minutes. So I want to get his question asked, which was about uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and maybe you could take this in a couple of different directions. Like, um, how, much how, time got? how much that, time you got? How much time you got? We got time. Uh, <laughs> I just want to hear like, how has that affected your landscape and uh, good and bad um, what do you think are the short and long-term, you know, kind of like dominoes out of all of that? Um, like, you know, I, I, I see it in, for example, some of the companies that have come public, 
um, HashiCorp, Confluent, whatever you want to say, successful companies, you know, when they were private companies, Silicon Valley Bank underwrote their wrote their credit letters so they could get space. They, they had their credit card there. They um, they were um, when the VCs wanted to do converts, Silicon Valley Bank underwrote the converts and got warrants. So made a boatload on the warrants. So I'm mean, just sort of curious, like what it, from a Silicon Valley Bank meltdown perspective, like what is the you know fallout done? What do you think are the dominoes out of that um, for your business and beyond? Yeah, I mean, so so generally, and then I'll, I'll talk, uh, you know, about our business. I think kind of big picture, um, if you're an early stage firm, right? So pre-Series C, pre-Series B, it's become a lot harder to raise debt, um, period. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was such a uh, key part of the ecosystem. You know, they were lending to companies that were Series A, uh, you know, Series B, uh, providing account receivable lines, you know, in the million, $2 million range. And, and a lot of lenders, you know, like that's just too small. <laughs> well, you know, like you talk to lenders and they're like, I, I want to put out five, 10, $20 million at a time, you know, doing ones and twos is just like, it doesn't scale a lot of times in, in, in kind of lending, right? So I think you're seeing that uh, pre-Series C, it's going to be a lot harder to access uh bank debt capital. There are still other banks out there that are still lending and, and what have you, but, um, you know, kind of what we've heard is, you know, higher end is probably still okay though. Underwriting has definitely tightened up and lower end, like that money is probably just not there period. Uh, and, and, and so what that's going to mean is a couple of things. You either need to raise more capital, right? Like more dilutive capital to replace what would have been some debt on a balance sheet, or you need to operate more efficiently, which may or may not mean different outcomes, right? Like maybe you can't do the 10 things that you want to do. You got to, you know, you, you can only fund six of them, right? With, with, with kind of the resources um, and, and the runway. For, for our business um, specifically, I think that week, you know, that, that kind of that weekend, um, we had dozens of calls and inbounds. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks were in shock the situation didn't resolve itself, at least in terms of, hey, do, do I even have access to my cash? Like that was like, you know, for, for a period of days, like people were like, I got $2 million there. Like I might just lose $2 million and there's no business. I can't make payroll, right? And so that got resolved fairly quickly. I think the aftermath is once again, you know, folks that had um, lines, yeah. you know, uh, revolving lines that they can't draw on anymore. You know, so many companies want under technical defaults, right? Like for one covenant or another. And so, there's sweet mechanisms now. Um, so I think that's going to be really tough. And, and that's feeding into, you know, the MBM top, right? Like companies need capital and existing backers, if they can't support them, you know, like there's there's opportunity for us. Yeah, I would just add, I think, um, again, it's not so relevant for us, um, but from a consumer, like the, these consumer brands that, um, you know, they just got through COVID, then they just got through supply chain issues, and now their working capital lines are getting slashed. I mean, it's it's brutal for those companies because um, they they just don't you know they've they've weathered a lot of storms already, and so many of them, given the supply chain issues, bulked up on inventory, um, assuming they could always get financing for it, and and now they can't. Um, and so I think there's 
for folks who are really like experts in direct to consumer, um, there's, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to pick up some brands over the next, you know, six to 12 months. You know, when you, when you, when you put it that way, uh, Lauren, um, God, it sounds like you guys are in such an enviable position because these companies, these consumer brands, they survived COVID. So you guys just, you know, for you sitting on sidelines here, right. You, you have like your, your first test, right. They passed sure. your second test. They got through the supply chain issues. They passed without you guys, right. Like they got through. So, you know, they passed. Yep. So if they, now they're failing at the third test or struggling at the third test, which is where you guys come in fails, obviously not because then they'd be chapters just, just closed down, but coming to you guys, that means that, you know, they passed a couple of different tests. So, so if they get through this test, maybe with a little bit of help from you guys, this is a cockroach. This is something that may never die, right? Like this may be like a hardened, awesome company for the duration. I, am I wrong? Like you guys are laughing, but like, am I wrong? Like, is that? Yeah, the I, I think you're right. I mean, I think we're we're not doing so much on the consumer side just because that's less of our expertise. So I do think folks who are great experts there will do really well if they lean in there. But that being said, that that is generally the case of what we're looking at. I mean, we are, and this is sort of to your earlier question as well. We actually like companies that are five, 10, 12 years old um, because they've made it. Um, you know, they've, they've been ignored here and there. Um, they've, they've been tested through a, a lot of these, you know, these different events. Um, and so we're not, we're, we're not too shy. You know, we, we like the, we like the older, older assets often, um, exactly for that reason. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, it brings up like a, an example in my head of, of, of a firm that a company that I know who, uh, Technically, the, the t- technology was invented before the GFC and, and really uh, brought in a CEO, professional CEO, right around 2009, and they've been scaling it. And, and they, I think at one point, had really, really good valuation, like above $500 million and, um, you know, kind of had that like runway. And here they are, like they're at like 18 to 20 million of run rate. They're almost break even. Right? They did a layoff. They're almost break even. If they get to 25, they'll be rule of 40. They're sort of, they have this un, unlocked asset that they haven't really gone after and just tried to discover it all. So there's like interesting things and maybe they're still a little top heavy on, on people. I don't know. Like, anyway, this is like, oh, it sounds like there's just so much in this category and it's never going to be a hundred million dollar business, but could it be a, okay. yeah. Could it be a, a, a $23 million business that grows 15% a year and is, is nicely profitable and you guys own it for a decade and make a fortune, obviously not if you're buying it at a $700 million valuation, right? You'd have to be getting it pennies on the dollar, but that's, that's what's happening. And they are series C, but they've had like nine series C's, by the way. That's kind of like, that's like, like a moving line there, you know, that like, um, okay, sorry. That was my, my, my little rant. I, I have two other questions here and then I'm going to ask, I'm going to jump, give it over to Felix for a sec. Um, first question is, just after the last one, uh, before the SVB question, um, you guys talked about building a team and so on and so forth. And I just wanted to make sure that like, what, what's the best way for people to reach you? Any listeners who either want to, to invest or want to um, find you guys and, and you know, come up with some amazing talent that might come your way, like resumes and such, like what's the best way to find you guys, reach you guys? It's just through the website. Is that kind of like the best thing? Sure. I think the, the easiest to spell is probably info at mbmcapital.co. 
Okay, got it. In that's dot, that's for listeners. That's dot co, not dot com. So make sure that's, that's right. where you're going. We're, we're both pretty active on LinkedIn, so yeah, LinkedIn or email, like either way. We're, we're okay. Pretty- okay, terrific. And I, I, I'm not like again. I'm just I'm not marketing securities. I'm not selling securities. I just out of curiosity, like, is there like a minimum? Can you give a range of like what's the minimum? that people can come to? Is this already, we're at the $10 million institutional level or is this like, no, we're still taking, you know, whatever. Like, tell me how people can invest if they want to invest. Yeah, so we have um, we have individuals who come in at, you know, 250K. We also have um, institutional investors, um, you know, writing larger checks. Um, you know, we've got a public pension fund invested. Um, so it kind of runs the gamut in terms of investors um, and we'll be raising, continuing to raise probably through the end of the summer. Yeah, I mean, sounds like it, right? Because to prepare for the bottom falling out, and, and it's it's yeah. also it's also only fair for you to raise because not only the two of you should become billionaires; it should be everybody who gets a chance to to you know become a billionaire by by buying pennies on the on the dollar. Um, yeah. And then uh, before I turn it over to uh, to Felix, um, Aruna had a follow up. I mean, it was probably for both of you guys, but like it sounds like like one of the big steps, easy steps in the playbook is like, let's get rid of the office space, or at least let's seriously take a look at what we have. Um, I, I think a lot of companies, a lot of funds, et cetera, are going in the same direction. I wonder, like, obviously, you know, sort of the office space, real estate space is going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you see smart investors on the other side saying, Ooh, we want to like do what you guys are doing, but on the real estate side, like, we're buying these leases or subleases at pennies on the dollar. And eventually cities like San Francisco, New York, Boston are going to get filled up again. And we can just sit on this capital like for a long time and take it as a tax offset or whatever it is. Like, yeah. are you seeing that yet? Is that? Yeah, no, I, I, so, so a couple uh, well-known real estate investors have, have dipped their toes and, and set up, uh, you know, what I call opportunity funds, but for real estate, you know, we got opportunity funds for you know, kind of these, these, uh, these companies. I think what we saw, and this is our playbook as well. Like we, we talked to venture lenders that, you know, they lent five or $10 million in a company and they're like, hey, would you like to buy this note at a discount? Because like, there's just, you know, like we, we, we don't want to take the keys. We, you know, we, we don't want the equity hit. Um, you're going to see the same thing in commercial real estate where, um, you know, the, the equity owners are basically turning the keys back to the lenders and saying, look, you know, I didn't hedge my interest rate risk. I can't refinance it because rates are higher. And, you know, like we, we didn't amortize the loan or whatever. And, and the banks don't want to own real estate, right? Like it's really bad from a... A capital ratio standpoint, right? It's like a one for one equity. So they they've got to like get it off the books, um, you know, take a hit. But even if they take a hit on the loan uh, and maybe turn it into a loan at that point, uh, that frees up equity, right? And so uh, folks are starting to gear up for that for sure. Um, you know, the question is like, what do you do with like a vacant office building that's uh, class B or class C built? Right. Like, it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they're not necessarily ready, you know, uh, for apartment conversions. Yeah. And may never be in certain, be, yeah. you know, areas that has to be rezoned. And, and then you have in some areas you have um, rising crime rate also doesn't help um, to repopulate certain cities. Um and then, oh, sorry, before, again, before I turn it over to Felix, I, got, I just want one more here but, um, is, um, do you see, like we said before, you know, if there were, I know I'm getting this wrong, but like, you know, rough numbers, if there were like a hundred venture capital 
companies in 2010, I don't know, maybe they're 2000, they were 2000 at the peak. Do you see an opportunity, almost like a spin out of your business to consolidate the VCs? Or is that just that an unconsolidatable, not a real word, but real word, but uh, you get my point. Um, is that just like you an impossible- the VC fund, like the fund managers? Yeah, like basically like, okay, these hundred funds yeah, yeah, are yeah. never going to really, there's going to be one exit, you know, to the golden, beautiful lands that they all, this total playbook has to be got rid of. All the institutions back them have to get pennies on the dollar. Uh, and they'll take, like you said, they'll take equity, any equity back because it's better than zero. And, uh, and then you start the hard work of like, you get, you inherit these entire portfolios exactly. that you guys can then triage for like cash flow, essentially. I mean, I think the question that, I mean, we, we've seen this and, and had some discussions um, with, with folks that like, you know, buy GP stakes. So they're, they're doing exactly that, but they're buying minority stakes and like larger managers, you know, like. 2 billion of AUM or 5, five billion of AUM. I think so, there are a lot of like small venture funds that started that were like deep tech or like, you know, very specific or very regional um, and, and, and buying the fund uh, for the franchise value that there, there really isn't going to be much franchise value because, you know, the returns are not there. The team is basically going to say, look, I need jobs somewhere else. There wasn't enough AUM to support, you know, like my salaries and stuff. So um, there may be opportunities to go and, and, you know, essentially say, look, we'll step into the fee stream. You guys are out because uh, you want to do something else. And then we'll work through the portfolio. But, you know, what, what I found in, in, in kind of investing in life is it's just better to be direct. And that kind of feels like an indirect way to get to like maybe one company that we really like. We might as well just like go straight to the company and, and, and figure out what's the yeah, what, what's the deal? You know, talk to the other investors and say, hey, here, here, we're, we're, we're coming in. This is the thing we're, we're going to do. Um, but uh, I, I, we, we, you know, we, we like asset management businesses. Um, and so th there may be opportunities to go and, and, and do some of that. It's a clever idea, actually. Yeah, I mean, but to your point, or like, uh, and Lauren, maybe like the best thing is like, you know, use data science to, to, like you, you guys build the list of like the hundred VCs you think are going to fail. Then you feed that into data science. It spits out like, you know, the thousand companies or whatever that they're invested in. And you guys can just run your math on those thousand and find the 19 that you're interested in. And you know what I mean? Like you can use it yeah. maybe and it'll save you time and capital basically. I mean, um, I would almost argue there are guys that buy secondary LP interests, right? And so like you could buy a secondary LP interest in a fund, but if we're going to take like two of those assets out... In a, in a, in a yeah. structure, and that fund only owns like eight percent of that company. Like, right? You need control. Like, I kind of prefer what we're doing. <laughs> right? You you need control, even if you don't own the stack. Like, even if you guys don't own greater than fifty percent of the company, you have to. You need the other VCs around the table to basically hand you guys the keys and say, "Yeah, yeah. We sponsor you guys to be chairman and run the firm, and we're just going to be passive from here." Like, you know, yeah, because yeah. because and I will say like the passive ownership where we own like eight percent of like a lot of companies, like from my perspective, nothing's going to change. Like so so true. Strategy is implicit in the strategy is that like we're going to push change. True, although at a steep enough discount, even that passive eight percent spot across enough companies 
and you come back and you close it up and you put it in the ground for 10 years, you come back and there's like, you're going to be like, holy cow. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, whoever's Absolutely. buying the warrant portfolio from SVB, like that, that, that would be like super interesting, right? Like you buy, yes. you know, like. That's what I thought. Hey, I would buy that. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Cause something's going to pop. Right. So, so like SVB, all the tier one VCs went to SVB to underwrite their converts, right? So yep. like S- SVB had a tier one VC portfolio of warrants that were clearly not getting properly valued when you had like six days to like shotgun and yep. decide. So so I don't know who bought them. I guess the whole the, the whole merge. The whole yeah. merge was sold. I, I don't know. I don't know if they traveled with the loans or if they stayed back in the state. It's it's a it's a great question. Yeah, but those that is whoever bought those will make if they understand what they bought and they don't fire sale it out, like that company will make will have an opportunity, I think. Probably. You're absolutely right. Cause SVB was basically underwriting the venture funds, not the companies, right? They were like, oh, Kleiner's coming in. Oh, sure. We'll we'll throw in an extra five million. They're they're really looking to the the venture investors and the quality, like the sort of you know, traditional quality of those venture investors to decide on whether they were going to write um, venture debt. Eventually, by the way, like your guys' next gig, when you're tired of this, when you've made your billions this way, is you take your billions that you've made in MBM and you guys start the new Silicon Valley Bank. You use that as the capital to start your new, yeah, because like there's a huge opportunity there as well, right? To just step in not today, maybe it's too risky, et cetera, but like today we're in that, you know, sort of consolidation and everything's on fire phase, but like kind of count forward a few years, there'll be an opportunity to play that role. Um, okay, Felix, I've, I've held you at bay for like, you know, an hour. <laughs> so can you step in, you want to step in, ask your question, Felix, go ahead, please. That's, 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 that's quite all right, because I'm really enjoying the, uh, the dialogue you guys are having. Hi, Lauren, Aaron, uh, it's great to, for you guys. Uh, to join us and really appreciate your time. Um, I, I guess the the conversation so far has been around the U.S. VC landscape, but I'm curious if you guys do anything from a more global perspective. You know, I'm not really looking for more ingredients in your secret sauce, so to speak, but maybe it's helpful for our listeners out there to understand if, one, you are involved in investments globally, and two, if if you are, you know, what are you most excited about and and how does your screening process kind of differ by different international market or by ecosystem? So um, I'll take I'll take the first part. Lauren, uh, feel free to jump in if I miss anything. So so we're only focused on the US today. Um, and, and it's uh, really we, we think the opportunity is so so immense in the US that it, it's really uh, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to go to other um, other places. I mean, I've spent time in Europe and Japan uh, in my career. Um, you know, even though we're only focused on the U.S., we are seeing, and we've had a number of firms approach us from Europe. I would say um, that you know the, the the venture markets are not as deep as the U.S. Certainly, you know, over the last decade, they've, they've expanded. Um, you know, as everything has. Um, I think one of the reasons, like even if we were unconstrained um, and, and the opportunity, you know, wasn't what we're seeing right now, I think, you know, investing globally, um, it would require teams kind of in the countries that we were investing in, right? Like, you know, so I've spent seven years, six years in Japan. Like if we were investing in Japan, which I, I think is a fascinating market, for example, 
we need a local team kind of there, you know, originating deals, understanding founders, doing diligence, like really understanding kind of market dynamics. And, and that's something that it may be a little bit different, you know, if you're a public markets investor, you, you, you might be able to do that, you know, kind of from, from New York to London and, and like global coverage. I think private markets and, and certainly the stuff that we're doing, which is, you know, uh, control investing, uh, you want to be on the ground. Yeah, I, I think that one of the, if you haven't noticed this about us, we are we are total control freaks. Um, and so we really kind of need everything to be pretty um, somewhat local to us because uh, we are, we are especially for the first call it three, four months uh, uh, post acquisition of these companies, we're, we're in it with them. Um, and so we, we'd have to be kind of uh, boots on the ground in, in different locations for expansion. Yeah. And, and, and just, it, it's not so much that um, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we, we are control investors. I think part of the diligence and just identifying good opportunities, like really understanding at a, at a very fine level, the, the landscape in which, you know, the, the target company plays in. And, and so, um, you know, when we look at HR tech, when we look at FinTech, you know, I was a bank investor, I was a CFTC investor, you know, we've done trading platforms, we've done broker dealers, we've done asset manager in the US, we know the regulations, we know the players, we, we know who acquires are. We can have those conversations. A lot of our diligence, you know, we're, um, as we're investing in the path of consolidation, we're calling the multi-billion dollar public companies and saying, hey, what do you think about the landscape? And so I think that that's where like having that local knowledge, because, you know, ultimately, the companies and the sizes that we're buying into are local businesses. Like, you know, the size we're buying, um, we're not buying businesses that are, you know, default in 15 countries. In fact, we've seen a lot of those businesses that were like unicorns and like the first order of businesses, get rid of all those other countries and just focus on the US, right? Or it, it, there was a European company where it's like, get rid of the US and, you know, Singapore and Brazil, whatever, and just focus on Europe. Um, because the, their scale, they, they just bit off too much um, you know, trying to expand uh, globally at their size. Understood. Appreciate it, guys. I'll turn it back to you, Ami. Yeah, thanks, Felix. That's also also where Arun, where, where you can use distribution effectively, right, to be that boots on the ground that you know find revenue without you having to give up. Obviously, give up sales off the top to them naturally, but find partners for expansion rather than doing it the the, the brute force, you know, kind of a country by country way. Um, I know we're on over an hour now, and I usually we usually stop well before um, our listeners. I think will appreciate um, that this is a, an exceptional uh, podcast for us, um, and we, we really are so so appreciative. I I, I do want to ask another question, which it is a growth question. Um, I, I, the thoughts are all jumbled together a little bit, so I apologize if there's kind of like the question is you know kind of comes packed in, but. When I think about all the strategies you guys put in place, the like, let's get back to, you know, common sense, almost like, you know, Ben Franklin's approach or something like that, right? Common sense approach. Um, and you think about doing those things, like we see those things get done in the public markets also. Um, for example, the CEO of ZoomInfo, Henry Shuck, 
um, he's famous for this. He's, he's, he's famously not like other technology acquirers, right? Typically technology acquisition, you get to keep your pool table and your beer pong and whatever it is else that you guys are doing. And you, and for now, instead of just an Xbox, now you have a PlayStation as well, whatever, like, you know, and it's all like you can run your own fife as long as you deliver X amount of revenue growth per quarter or whatever it is. And then eventually that ends badly. And then they consolidate the two companies after a couple of years. Henry shows up on day one and literally <clears throat> has like a junk truck outside taking away the, the beer fridge um, and says to every, and fires everyone who ran the company before, like everyone who ran that, the, the target and says, if you were here to make friends, uh, go find communities and make friends somewhere else. We're here to make money. And that's not what we're doing here. And, and if you're not up for this, you know, you can, you can take it. Goodbye. And, uh, and by the way, his last name, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a coincidence, but his last name in medieval English meant fiend or devil. <laughs> anyway, I guess this is a long way of saying like uh, what we see when you do those things. Yes. Like the control element, you get a runway that I'll call, I mentioned this earlier, maybe like I'd say at best case, three years of growth out of it. There's low hanging fruit. There's always, right? And you get profit growth and you get top line growth. The top line growth obviously will spike from the pricing and some other things being done and then will fade. The profit growth will accelerate across that time frame. But you get like three years essentially out of it. Um, how do you prepare for, I guess this is maybe too early in the fund's life cycle, but how do you prepare for what comes after that three years where you, you kind of get stuck into that like, you know, we close the not, not MBM closing its funnel, but the company itself, the target, closed its funnel by the actions that they took, uh, eliminating crazy projects, uh, you know, getting rid of the, the office space, people don't get together and brainstorm, and you know, whatever, 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 all the different things, um, you know, customer funnel because now we increase the price, and so we're no longer cheaper than the regular service, whatever it is. Like, how do you prepare for? growing these companies beyond uh, the first call two and a half years, three years, you know, into the distance where the, the common sense fixes kind of run out of steam, at least from what we see in the public markets, that typically is what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a couple of things. So um, one, one is an organic growth. So if you think about uh, the venture landscape uh, there, you know, any, any segment of the market, uh, dozens, hundreds of companies have been funded that have you know kind of these subscale economics, and so um, some of the things we look for are platform companies where you can bolt on and, and kind of grow in organically. And so rather than us buying company A in the fund and then company B in the fund, we're saying, hey, we're buying company A and company A because they're in a particular sector and, and kind of a natural consolidator platform, and we've cleaned it up. We'll go buy B, C, and D. Right and, and kind of get scaled back. That's what we're doing right now with it. What are we invested in a company called the Muse, and that's an HR tech roll-up play. Um, you know, we've we've done uh, an acquisition already in that, and lots and lots of opportunity, especially over the next twelve to eighteen months, to pick up inorganic revenue on the cheap, basically. I, I okay, so I hear that. Um, oh. that you had, sorry, you had the rest. The rest of your question, I think, was like, what happens after that. Um, 
Yeah, and so 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 maybe let me just uh, I mean one thing I'll say is like as we go into businesses, we're actually exit planning day one. So we're buying effectively with the intents to sell, right? So so um, you know we we manage a fund, right? This isn't um, permanent capital vehicle. Uh, you know, uh, as much as everyone wants to be like the next Berkshire Hathaway, like we're not making any claims to, to that. Um, and so as we enter companies, we're entering with the intent to sell. And, and, and really what that means is kind of day one, we're aligning the go forward managing say, look, this is where we need the business to get to. Uh, so we're typically saying we need to get to, you know, X of revenue, Y of profit, EBITDA, whatever the metrics are for a particular business. And here's the path how we're going to get there. It's going to take us three years, five years, two years, whatever that path is. Um, and we're talking to uh, potential strategic acquirers before we transact to, to understand, well, you know, like, what do we need to get to? Like, like what, what is reasonable? And triangulate that back to, okay, if we put this amount of capital uh, into the company, uh, you know, when we say we buy companies, our cash is typically staying on the balance sheet of the companies. So there's cash to, to manage the realization and, and kind of grow. Um, we have a clear sense of like what needs to get done. Uh, we've also managed exits in our careers. And so we know that, you know, to your point, if we think growth is going to stall out, you know, after year three, we're, we're starting exit planning um, in earnest with the team in year two, two and a half. And, and, and there's work, right? You, you've got to get the story. You've got to get the right people in place, the mentality, the operations. Um, you know, it's a process to sell a company. It doesn't happen magically because you've hired an investment banker. In fact, if you just hire an investment banker and don't run like a process, like nothing happens. You're just going to piss away money and time, right? And so you really have to work at it um, as a company. And by the way, a lot of these companies don't come from a banking background. And when their venture backers aren't there, like who's telling them what to do and, and guiding them and actually forcing the work to get done? Like no one, right? And so these companies just don't get sold, which, which is a great opportunity for us Right. That's more money for you guys uh, lying around. Um, it sounds like as your success grows, you guys are going to have your hands full because you're going to even have to have like almost like a mini uh, banking. You're going to have some have to have some banking experts like in the small scale banking. I mean, there's just going to be so much opportunity here for you guys. Um, Lauren, I think you were going to add something actually on that last one. I, I didn't want I wanted to make sure to circle back to that. I don't know how valuable it was, but I was going to say, but I I think that, you know, my, my main point was, you know, I think we get the company to a certain point where, you know, if their growth slows a little bit, that's okay. But it just, it, 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 the real play there is to be able to be acquired so that the acquirer can plug that company into their distribution and see that next big wave of growth for them. That's low hanging fruit. It's no longer low hanging fruit for us. Right. But that's okay. Right. You, 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 your goal is to be in the middle, like meaning you're facilitating the exit off the bottom, so to speak, and you'll gladly sell to someone else who can do the math and make 10x off of that as well. Exactly. Yeah, happy for, yeah. happy for them to do that. Yeah. yeah, and you don't need to own all the way through. It's like the old, you know, you know, you know, pigs get slaughtered. You don't need to own every part of the cap structure. You guys can win big with your section and your expertise. I mean, you always want to leave some low-hanging fruit as you're running an exit process because you want the other guys to be like, aha, <laughs> I could do that. 
right? And it gets them engaged and they, they realize that they can have some quick wins. And that, and that creates kind of a competitive dynamic. Um, so anyways, uh, yes. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data-driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Arun and Lauren, this has been, wow. Uh, My brain is melting and I really appreciate uh, your time today. This has been uh, absolutely one of our best podcasts ever. I, I appreciate your time. I'm so excited about what you're doing. I wish I had thought of it. Um, I know you guys are going to get super wealthy and super successful. I wish you nothing but success. I hope we can get you guys back on the podcast at some point to talk about all your success. Um, for people who want to reach out uh, to Lauren and Arun, we've we've mentioned uh, LinkedIn. We've mentioned the site that, that is a .co, by the way, info at mbmcapital.co. Um, that's for people wanting to join the team or invest in the team. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, thank you so much. This has been season three, episode eight of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.